Hey there, everybody. The holidays are right around the corner. Does the horror fan in your life need a super cozy gift? Well, if they do, head on over to wickedcatclothing.com for all things paranormal, horror, and Halloween-related 365 days out of the year. So, you know, celebrate Halloween and Christmas. We we do that. I like that. You know, Scott, I'm sure you have a whole bunch of horror decorations on your tree. Yeah, well, yeah, on my tree and also just Halloween decorations in general we've got a gigantic like three foot skull that's just sitting in the middle of my living room from halloween and we decided to just leave it up year round because it's very festive like it is good- festive i've seen those people get those giant skeletons and put santa hats on them it, it goes well together is all i'm saying christmas and halloween they still can mesh together we love them both and so does wicked cat clothing you can shop hoodies sweatshirts joggers t-shirts and more save 30 percent off with the code fangoria 30 and get free shipping orders when you spend over $100. That's right. And I am here to tell you about The Haunted and The Hunted. This is a podcast inspired by the classic monster stories. If monster lore, action, and adventure is your taste, The Haunted and The Hunted podcast is a six-episode series that will make you wish Halloween was every night of the year. Written by Christophe Bogax and Mitchell Hall, The Haunted and The Hunted is about monster actor Lon Chaney Jr. He's down and out and going through a rough patch with his career. The CIA finds out about a big monster meeting in communist Cuba. They enroll Lon Chaney Jr. and some of his friends to get to get themselves to Cuba and find out what is going on. And then Lon Chaney has to sober up, get his life together and do what he does best in creature design and acting to get out of this mission with his life. This podcast is available on all formats. I'm going to be honest with you. I have not heard it yet, but that sounds exactly like my shit. So I'm going to be checking it out. Oh, totally. That's like Argo with monster makeup. I love real, right? Good call. Good call. Very curious about that one. And before we actually dive into the show, we do have to say, you know, Fangoria the magazine. We like that Fangoria magazine. You've heard our spiel before. You're going to hear it again, but we wouldn't tell it to you if we didn't believe in this magazine. Uh, This upcoming issue, Scott and I both have pieces in it. We are part of the family in more ways than one. We love the folks there. We love what they're doing with it. You know that every single issue of this kick-ass magazine will explore every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking, past, present, and future. And with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, the high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of this magazine. So if you want to join in on the fun, you'll need to subscribe. And these issues sell out all the time. The I think the last issue... The subscriber issue is going for two or three hundred bucks on on eBay now. It's an investment, <laughs> is what we're saying. Yes. So, in order to join in with uh, all of us lovely horror Fango magazine people, all you have to do is go to their website at fangoria.com and sign up. And since Kingcast listeners are in the family, you can enter in the promo code Kingcast at checkout to save a whopping twenty five percent off your entire order. Now, with all of that said, on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad love! Bad love! You guys wanna go see a dead body? Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We are very hyped to be talking to today's guest, a multi-talented creator whose contributions to the wild world of genre uh, really run the gamut. 
from Star Trek to Carnival Row to writing for the L.A. Times, Playboy and The Hollywood Reporter to uh, his Inkpot winning work in the field of comics, a highly entertaining podcast that he co-hosts with Kevin Smith and, of course, to Hulu's Castle Rock series, which uh, surely all of our listeners are familiar with. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Mark Bernardin. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. I I, I come to believe it's taken so long. <laughs> uh, Mark was asking us about our swearing policy uh, before we before we smashed that, that record swear. button. That was that was Oxford's. That was the Queen's English, my friend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll yeah, I don't know it. if. If, if you've seen Super Troopers, but there was a little bit of a dare on him sleeping in a certain word in there, and maybe the eagle-eared <laughs> listeners caught it. <laughs> <laughs> so we are really excited to talk to you. I, I loved Castle Rock. Um, my understanding is that it had a two-season run, and that's it. But um, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to talk to you about that. Like, how, uh, how was it for you working on that show? Did you get to um, talk to King at all? Like how, what was the creative process? Of, like, tell me everything about it. <laughs> tell me everything. Uh, yes. Do it in 10 minutes. Um, yeah. No, it, well, it, it was, it was a great experience. It wasn't quite my first TV experiences, but it felt like, it felt like that thing where you, you go to like a community college and it counts as like a semester, but then you transfer to the college you're going to matriculate from. That's mm-hmm. a bit what my Castle Rock experience was. It was, it was my first time in like big boy school. And, mm-hmm. um, and the experience was was terrific. I mean, in in and when I say terrific, I mean it, it's awful in all the ways that television is awful. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> that being said, it was you know the people that I worked with were great. They had nothing but passion and love for both Stephen King and for television and for the show we were making. You know, the, the trick of it is is that um, everybody kind of comes to Stephen King from different angles. Everybody comes to to horror from different places. And a lot of the people in that room, while all like far smarter than me, came to Stephen King from a particular place, which was, and it's a place of, of, of worth, which is Stephen King is the great unheralded American writer. You mm-hmm. know, nobody gives him credit for being the character writer that he is. I mean, they always give him credit right. for the horror stuff. They always give him credit for the, for the boo stuff. But when you look at Stephen King books, for the most part, they're not mysteries, they are, here's a bunch of people, and we're going to introduce you to their lives, and then a bad thing is going to crash into their lives, and what do they do about it? And totally. in order to make, to make stories like that function, you need to build those lives of those characters so that we understand them, and we can empathize with them, and we know who they are. So when mm-hmm. that giant Mack truck of supernatural awfulness um, blindsides their lives, we know who they are and how they're going to respond to it. So that was where right. they came from. I came from a... This is also horror and horror has rules. And we need to know kind of going into this, the story we're telling. Like it's a magic trick, but the magician needs to know how the trick works. And mm-hmm. so we need to make decisions about like, all right, is this guy we found in the basement of Shawshank the devil? Is he just mm-hmm. an innocent person? Is he the herald of evil coming? Does he drag evil behind him? Is he a demon? Does he come from an alternate dimension? Like it could be any of those things, but it has to mm-hmm. be one of those things. And we have to know Otherwise, we can't then build the rest of the scaffolding to hold this this building up. And also, the exercise of Castle Rock was like not to be a Stephen King cover band. Uh, not to say that there's anything wrong with being a Stephen King cover band. Like I love Stephen King cover bands, but it's find the Stephen King, the lost Stephen King single, right? Like 
here's here's the the thing from the trunk that he never released that if you listen to it won't be a thing that's familiar but you can tell it's from that same person yeah um, totally you know, i would imagine so that, was, that i would imagine that what you were doing with just sort of remixing all the elements of his work you know just the various characters bumping into each other was it's it, itself must have been a huge challenge just to figure out how to balance all of that right yeah i mean it's 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 the, the the other thing we were trying not to do was trying not to be like the Avengers of Stephen King, um, right? But that is still like knowing that an audience is going to come to Castle Rock, kind of expecting to at the very least have these glancing blows against the Stephen King canon, and to mm-hmm. make those things feel um, worth having done, and have a, a, reticent, a, a resonance to their, themselves, but to also have the show stand as as its own entity. And so that was the, the fuel air mixture of that um, took some modulating, you know, even in the room and on the stage and in the editing bays, like how much, how little feels right. How can we push? Where do we need to pull back? And then that's a process that went until I think the audience got to watch it. <laughs> like how much is too much? How much is not enough? Um, <laughs> we'll figure it know, out. We'll figure it out. As a, as a writing staff, you know, a lot of the work was ingesting as much King as we could. And trying to distill out of it what made it Stephen King. What are the things within a Stephen King story that are unmistakably King? And then how can we, you know, borrow some of those patterns and some of those those meters and put it into a show so that it would feel as if it came from the man's hand himself? I think what's interesting about just the basic kernel of the concept of the show and why it's so appealing to Stephen King fans is because... Going back to, you know, even the the very early days, his stuff has had an interconnectivity that most authors don't, right? So the fact that you're setting it, you're calling it Castle Rock, and it's set in this fictional town, which has had everything from like, you know, Cujo and, and Leland Gaunt and, you know, all this in the dark half, like all this stuff happens all around this one town. And what I loved about it, as you said, it wasn't just a the Avengers of Stephen King, but but what I what I particularly loved was on all levels, it was a love letter to King, right? Uh, and, and when I say that, I mean, you know, you have Sissy Spacek in the show, but it's not, she's not playing Carrie White, you know, mm. and you have Tim Robbins in the show and he's not Andy Dufresne. I love that even in the casting level that it's like, yeah, we're going to cast some very notable King adaptation people and the baggage they bring you know the bill skarsgård you know it's like just on every level it was like yes we know what you love about kind of the detail of king and uh, this is what we're going to give you um yeah that, at least I mean, that from my perspective seemed to be the approach mm. yeah i mean funny i i there was there was a minute in the room where i don't know if i've mentioned this on a podcast before but i feel like if i'm going to do it anywhere this is probably the place I had pitched a run where at the end of the first season, we cut to a mental institution. And, you know, there's a couple of doctors, you know, wheeling somebody down, um, you know, in a wheelchair down a hallway. And and it's something like, well, you know, we did the, we, we, were, we were trying to figure out what happened in that town. And it turns out that there was a, there was a patient who had been released from this facility, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, you know, after an, a cataclysm at a high school. You know, her oh, name changed um, to protect her identity. She was, you know, she was just, she was a minor at the time. And so she was then put through treatment and released, you know, the idea of, and if you are a person, if that is a person who's, who's going through Alzheimer's, who's beginning to lose control of her mind, right? what is more dangerous than a telekinetic 
who's losing control of their mind. Right. You know? Oh man, and I so love that. The reason why Castle Rock was, you know, ground zero for everything awful that had ever happened is because that's where Carrie White went to live after the events of Carrie. And the, the reason we couldn't do it is because we didn't have the rights to carry. And I was like, but you don't need the rights to carry. You have Sissy Spacek. We never need to say the name Carrie White. You just need right. to start like laying some of those, like just needle dropper in those little clues and the audience will do the rest of that work. And ultimately yeah. it was, ah, it's too close. We can't do it. It's too close. Oh, we man, might get that's sued. A, right. Yeah. <laughs> that's a bummer though. That would have kicked ass. I love that. Yeah. Pitch. That, that, yeah, that's that, such a that, great idea too. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one that got away. I, well, and I, yeah, I gotta say, I'm not just blowing smoke here because you're a guest on our show, but that that being an explanation, kind of an underscoring explanation for all the fucking weird shit that's happening in the town, is is such a remarkable idea. Like, I, I think that that is it, it's it's something that works weirdly as fan service, but also as, as like a legit good story beat. Yeah, too. For real. And those are so rare to find, you know. Yeah, it's uh, I, and I, I, I remember, will continue to, to give people crap for not letting me do that, even though I totally understand, <laughs> I totally understand why I, we couldn't. I remember being delighted when the second season started and the just the direction that it went in, because I remember that at the end of the first season, it still seemed like people weren't really understanding what y'all were trying to do with the show in the sense that, well, it's it's going to be an anthology thing and it's going to. We're going to change up the storyline from season to season. Uh, I remember getting in conversations with people that just didn't didn't seem to grasp that. And a lot of people just assuming that season two would pick up where season one left off and be like an Overlook Hotel story. And Mm. and I'm like that that would seem to betray the very name of the show uh, (laughs) if suddenly they relocated all the action to to Colorado. But, you know, I didn't you know, I don't think that's going to happen. But what you came up with on season two, I thought was really neat in the same in the same way that the first one was. It's just like you guys made that thing look easy, which I know it could not possibly have been. And that's that's so impressive to be able to balance all those things that you've talked about and deliver a show that's like compulsively washable like that one was is is a real feat. You should be proud of it. Um, yeah, no, I am. And I'm you know, all the people who worked on it first season, second season. Um I mean, the idea I think was always to have that feeling of your your. It's the SKU, right? The Stephen King universe, mm-hmm. and we're just pulling pulling a book off the shelves, and it's a tale set in that universe. And they will have connective tissue, and there will be some tendrils that that sort of stretch between them, but they're completely different things, you know. And I think the the latitude to be able to do that, the freedom to be able to do that, is kind of rare. And I'm glad that that Hulu and Bad Robot and Warner Brothers all kind of let us take those big swings. Are you familiar with anything regarding the Overlook Hotel series that they're doing for uh, for HBO Max? Or wait, they were doing for HBO Max. I they guess were. they're not going I mean, forward. I, I I know a little bit about a little bit um, because you know many of the same people um, are responsible for Overlook as we're responsible for Castle Rock, and mm. and I still keep in touch. I do hope they find a home for that, and I'm kind of surprised that hasn't already been announced. It would seem like a slam dunk proposition. So hopefully we, we get word on that soon. Yeah, fingers crossed, because, you know, I know that the things they were planning are awesome, and I know the people who are doing it are awesome, um, and I think that television deserves more awesome things, and so that would seem to be a formula for giving us awesome for our eyeballs. Indeed, and we just need these King adaptations to keep coming hot and fast, because, you know, we got to keep this show going, you know. <laughs> uh, the, the truth is, there's like 25 of them or some shit in development right now, so we're not... We're not going anywhere anytime soon, but uh, 
you know, the longer they're pumping these things out, the longer we can do this show. So very exciting (laughs) stuff. So what is your Stephen King origin story? You know, when did you when did he first come on your radar? Is this like sort of pop cultural icon? Is it a book, a movie? Um, I think it was if I had to if I had to cast my mind back through the mists of antiquity. Mm. I think it was Firestarter. I think it was really, the, and, and I think it was the movie. I think it was the Drew Barrymore movie because I, I feel like coming off of ET, you know, seeing that at you know probably what thirteen years old, twelve, thirteen years old, I saw that, mm-hmm. and I'm like I like that Drew Barrymore lady, and oh, she's in another one, and it's about fire. Like that sounds cool <laughs> for like a thirteen. I like boy. fire, and I like Drew Barrymore. Fire's Perfect rad. Match. This is neat. And I think I was also like at that point just starting probably my first year of reading the X Men. And mm-hmm. so, you know, Firestarter is very much like, oh, she's just, she's a fucking mutant. That's cool. <laughs> and, the, and the mutant powers, I can make fire do things. That's also cool. Um, so I remember seeing the movie and being kind of taken with it for all the reasons that a, that a 13-year-old boy is taken with a movie about a kid who can shoot fireballs out of her mind. And then I went back and I read the book. Um, and then I was like, oh, I like this dude. I think I like the way he writes. And I had been reading a lot of fantasy at that time. Like, I think I had been in in a big Conan the Barbarian, Robert E. Howard um, zone, which then, you know, somehow transferred into, like, Isaac, Isaac Asimov and 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 sort of the classics of science fiction, Arthur C. Clarke and that stuff. And then this was my first King. And I, consequently, I never really tracked King the horror writer. I more tracked King... The, you know, fantasy, thriller, occasional science fiction writer. You know, my way in was not The Shining or Carrie or, or It or Tommyknockers. You know, it was um, The Dark Tower and Eyes of the Dragon and Firestarter and The Running Man. Yeah, that, that's where my love for King began. That's an interesting answer. I'm not sure that, you know, we've, we've heard every every possible answer to this question, but I don't, I don't think we've heard. I started with Firestarter, the movie. Have you, have you seen it? Have you seen it recently, by the way? I have because um, my son in the middle of quarantine, he's now 17, but this would have been, you know, 15 years old. Um, we yeah. started just showing him stuff from the eighties um, because I'm like, yeah, this is what I watched when I was, you know, about your age, maybe you'll dig it. And then the kick for me is revisiting stuff. You know, like, oh, Nightmare on Elm Street. How does this play today? How does, you right. know, how does The Shining play today? How does, you know, stuff like that. And so watching Firestarter was like, it's not a great movie. Um, <laughs> no, it is not. It's not a great movie. And like, yeah, George C. E. Scott as an Indian is not great either. But, <laughs> uh, but I, I is, do, yeah. understatement of the year. But I do think that that there is still an, an elemental core to that story that works. You know, that, that idea, sure. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a father daughter story. It's a, it's a, it's a, I want for my kid better than I had for me story. Um, you know, it's a government overreach story and it's, you know, as, as would become a trope. Um, and I'm not sure if this is the, where the trope begins or if it begins around here, but the, the girl with explosive powers um, who cannot be controlled by the men around her also feels mm-hmm. like a very kind of just embracing feminism <laughs> kind of parable um, that would then become this, you know, hallmark in, in both comics and TV and movies. And I mean, the dark sure. Phoenix story is nothing but, 
trying to to tamp down the inner workings of a woman by putting mental blocks in her mind to keep her from doing the things that she should do. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's not great either. <laughs> I think of, you know, if we're talking about like king adaptations from that period, I think Firestarter probably holds up the least. Um, mm-hmm. Something we, we we've discovered in doing this show is, you know, like like you and your son were doing, going back and re- revisiting some of these titles that we haven't seen in many many years. And two of the biggest surprises were me, for me were how little Firestarter holds up. Like I actively <laughs> dislike that movie now, and how much Cujo does hold up. That went for me from being like a movie I saw many years ago and being like, yeah, this is all right. To upon revisitation, being like. Holy shit, this is like top tier adaptation material here. We should be talking about this one more often. Unfortunate for Firestarter, but good news for you guys, Hugo <laughs> D. Wallace. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so that that was my that was my sort of beginning. And that and and it was a thing I remember having the conversations with um with Dusty Thomason and Sam Shaw for the first when I first met with them on Castle Rock about how I got into King and where my my vector into this stuff begins. And I was like, yeah, I was not the horror person. Um, despite the fact that I I watched a lot of horror and I read a decent number of horror books as a kid, um, mm-hmm. my way into King was not that. But still finding those lessons in there. So finding, you know, the, the architecture that he uses to tell stories um, has some similarities across genres. And it's one right. of the things that I've always I've always loved about it. I'm yeah, curious. I mean, are you a, are you a Dark Tower fan? Um, I was a. I, I love the first book. I like the second book, and then it started to get weird for me in a way that I that, that like it. I, I appreciate it more than I like it. I appreciate mm-hmm. that it's it's a guy just chasing whatever dragon he wants to be chasing at the moment, and if it's going to mm-hmm. lead me into weird ass time travel and mystical stuff or whatever. I thought it began as a western, and now it's all mm-hmm. of this stuff. And I will always give a creative person license to follow their their bliss wherever it might lead. But mm-hmm. as a reader, I was like, what is this now? And we're doing, oh, oh, all right. I don't know if I like it as much as I like the other stuff. But yeah, go off, King. Do your thing. I think, <laughs> see, I think that's one of the biggest selling points of the thing is that it runs through all these different kinds of genres. And each different book is a different flavor. I really appreciate that about it. I'm not sure if it were Western all the way through, if I would like it as much. Yeah. But I mean, and I think that, that my response to it is very much an adolescent response. You know, I mm. have not gone back to it and revisited it with sort of grown ass man eyes. And I might feel <laughs> differently, but I remember just as a kid being like, I wanted chocolate and suddenly there's Skittles in here. I, I mean, I don't mm-hmm. dislike Skittles, but I was not expecting Skittles. And now it's a Danish. Right. I also like Danish, but what? <laughs> See, I kind of reacted like that to the fourth book. Uh, which is essentially a romance. And Mm. so coming off that third book where it's like, you know, they're all, you know, it ends on this massive cliffhanger. And so then we waited six years for the next book. And I'm like, fuck, yes, they're going to resolve this cliffhanger. Finally, we we get this thing back on track. And then they very quickly resolve the cliffhanger. And then immediately it goes into like a novel length flashback that is a romance. I'm like 15 at the time. And I have no patience for this shit whatsoever. (laughs) was just like, <laughs> I want more fucking wild adventures in this post-apocalyptic landscape and blah, blah, blah. And that is not what that book is. But, uh, you know, with the passage of time now, now that's one of my favorites. On a certain day, I will even plead the argument that it's one of the best written in the entire series, if not the best. So 
it's it's it might be worth going back and, and checking that out and seeing if you respond yeah. to it differently now yeah. that you if know you what do it revisit is. it if you do revisit it uh, uh hit us up i'm very curious about what your what your take is on it i'm going back through the series again uh, myself but like I, I i've read through it so many times you know by this point but this is this is probably the longest i've gone since since uh first discovering them that i've uh, going back to it now because I don't think I've gone through the series since book seven came out. I think that was the last time. So that's we're talking what fifteen years. I did it again before uh, yeah. the movie came out, which turned right. out to be utter an utterly pointless exercise. But um, <laughs> but I that was the last time I did a full re- reread, and I'm kind of itching to do another one. Well, I tell you, if I if I if I manage to do what I'm hoping to do, which is find a way to contract a very mild tapeworm. Uh-huh. <laughs> but like just the kind that kind of lays you up for a couple of weeks and shaves like 15 pounds off, but does nothing else adverse to your body. Right. Then that's right. when I'll dig in to the dark. Tower. Oh, I want one of those. <laughs> that sounds delightful. Perfect. All right. So we'll f- need to find a, a, a good tapeworm for, for Mark. Yeah, Let's tapeworm all get tapeworms. I need help losing another 15 pounds. Yeah, I, I feel, I feel yeah. like we're all right now signing up for whatever program that isn't thinner, which is probably a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll keep our eyes out for maybe maybe my weed guy sells tapeworms now. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll ask the next time I talk to him. Um, by the way, I think uh, the fucking guy from Thinner just died, didn't he? The uh, yeah, the, Thinner, that guy, the, the, um, yeah, Thinner. <laughs> yeah. yeah, rest Aww. in peace. Yeah, yeah, rest in peace. Sir. So so way to um, bring the show down, Mark. We appreciate it. Yeah, sorry, real man. nice, real nice. <laughs> um, yeah. Now let's let's talk a little bit about the title you brought us today. You wanted to talk about the Running Man, which yes, which I, is a title we've talked about on the show before. Uh, it's uh, it's hard to even think about the movie as a as a King property because it's so skewed from what the the source material is. But so a lot of people really like it that are just like in eighties movies and shit like that. Um, <laughs> I love both versions of it, and the fun thing about Running Man is you can approach this this property from a bazillion different angles and never cover it all. And, and you had a really interesting pitch before we get to that though. Um, for anyone who is not familiar with the running man somehow, maybe more specifically the short story than the movie. Cause I think everyone's seen the movie. Uh, would you mind laying out like the basic plot for this, for the listeners? Yeah. I mean the, the basic plot of the, the Richard Bachman running man mm-hmm. is that Ben Richards is when the year 2025, Ben Richards is living in, what can only be described as like the projects or mega city one where it's, you know, future, very dense living. He and his wife and his daughter are in what feels like it's a one room apartment. His daughter has like, I want to say it's pneumonia or some kind of, you know, ailment that affects children Um, that could be treated if the Richards family had any money at all. Um, But he's out of work. His wife is a, uh, a reformed prostitute who, you know, is out to like she's more than willing to go out and turn a couple of tricks to raise to, to earn enough money to get medicine for their kid. But mm-hmm. Ben Richards, um, who has some kind of tuberculosis or something, is unwilling to to let his wife do that. And so he then makes a decision. He's going to go and play the game, and you know any game because this is also a world in which. Um, much like Black Mirror would eventually get to, that there are a bunch of different games, game shows on television, uh, many of which revolve around people doing things and winning money and or dying if they fail. 
Mm-hmm. And so Ben Richards, you know, steals his will and leaves his squalor and walks through the, the urban blight to get to the games building where he would do any game that he could possibly do, whatever, like run on a treadmill until either you win a thousand dollars or you have a heart attack. Um, you know, I think there was something about dogs and sharks and whatever. It sounds about right. Um, yeah, it's like but, climbing a rope or something, right? You're climbing a rope yeah. a, a above something dangerous and there's money at the top of the rope or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's five it's minutes nothing. away from that being on CBS in prime time. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Climbing for dollars. Um, but the show that he ends up on is the biggest show in the network, which is called The Running Man. And ultimately it is, it's, you know, we're going to give you a head start. And if you can stay alive and on the loose for X number of hours, you will win, you know, a, an exponentially, uh, you know, mounting cash prize. Um, the longer you can stay out, the more you can win. And the hunters are everybody because there's bounties on you. Um, so if a, your average person on the street sees you walking by, they can call into the games department and then they will win a hundred bucks for having spotted you and then clue in the actual hunters whose job it is to, you know, kill you or retrieve you or both. And so it becomes this very street level, paranoid, um, wanted man thriller about a guy just trying to say, raise enough money to save his family who's been pushed to desperation by, uh, by a society that values nothing more than the suffering of the lowest common denominator. Um, mm-hmm. It is a story about lots of different things. Um, there's, no, there's no racial specification for Ben Richards in the book, but, but given when I read it, the first time I read it, given all of the descriptors of where he lives and how he lives, he lives in a slum. And, you know, I grew up in the Bronx and all the people that grew up with me in the Bronx who lived with me were people of color. And so I imagined, always imagined Ben Richards as a, as a black dude. And then looking at it through sort of that lens, then it becomes a story about class and about race and about the disposability of the human soul, about the predatory nature of our own entertainment industrial complex. It becomes you know, it, it becomes this actually very trenchant satire on the us we are now told in the mid 80s by a dude who may or may not have been on cocaine while he wrote this book in a week. Um, <laughs> he was. And <laughs> I'll go on. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Not to cast aspersions, but I've read some stuff where he will lay claim to have, what is it, Cujo he wrote over a weekend and he only knew he did it because he found the manuscript. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a few stories like that, you know. Um, I don't know, man. I, have you ever? Uh, well, I'm not going to go down that road. I was going to say, have you ever tried to write something <laughs> on cocaine? <laughs> like, but it's uh, it, we probably don't want to open that door. But I will say that it is nearly impossible. I can imagine like the superhuman strength it would require to focus on a single document and have it be even remotely coherent. If you're on those kind of benders, like that's just that's fucking insane to me. And he, he pulled yeah. it off, you know, thankfully he got clean. I think he, he seems happier and has a better life now. I'm sure his family appreciates it. So, so I will say good. he's a better, a better writer on, on cocaine than he is on Oxycontin. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that is very so, true. It would be funny <laughs> if Stephen King got like way into weed. Like just th- at this point in his life was like, look, uh, this stuff's pretty harmless. It's legal now. Uh, I'm going to get and it writes a fucking dream catcher sequel or something. That's probably how that would turn out. <laughs> we're, we're going back to the Tommy knockers, folks. Yeah. That'd be interesting. 
Indeed. Where do you stand on the movie then in relation to everything you've just said? Um, you know, like the movie was my way into it because, you know, I was a massive Schwarzenegger fan and remain so. Um, and so, of course, I was going to watch The Running Man. That sounds cool. And Richard Dawson, that seems like perfect casting. Yeah. Um, you know, and they tried to retain elements of, I, I suppose, the social commentary of the book. But in in the late 80s, there's no way they were ever going to make this version of the story. You know, and I and I think there always becomes the problem when the movie only gets made because Schwarzenegger wants to do it, and yet Schwarzenegger is definitely not your every man down on his luck. Um, Fuck no. He's an Adonis, and so like that dude could take naked pictures and make money to make his family um, wealthy, you know, healthy. <laughs> so it then becomes like you it, go it, rip it, phone books in half somewhere for for some change. Totally, yeah. you can just be like a circus freak if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger, just lifting Volkswagens, and people will give you money. And so it, it starts to bend it a little bit out of whack, and it got little, a little, very cartoonish and very campy. Um, in ways that that very much betray the spirit of the original of the original text, right. but you know it is what it is. It's the eighties and it's Schwarzenegger, <laughs> and sure. But given that the movie was what led me to the book, I have a love for the movie because if there had not been a movie, I never would have read the book. And so I, I cannot, I can't separate one from the other. Right. Well, that's the the thing that you have to weigh here because we talked a, a little bit earlier. Scott mentioned the. Some movies that we've revisited, you know, from from the '80s, didn't hold up for him. Some have held up better than than that, and I think that my version of that is really like I've always liked The Running Man just as a fun movie to watch, mm-hmm. but like revisiting it now, it, especially when rewatching it when we started the podcast and we actually had a, a reality TV show, you know, host <laughs> running the country, uh, you know, watching the movie now, it has almost a Paul Verhoeven esque like. Yeah, biting dark and accurate satire that's running through it. It's it's goofier and dumber than than something like RoboCop, but it's <laughs> it's hitting a lot of those same notes, and uh, and so you know that's kind of the thing we have to address here. Where it's like, yes, the movie has virtually nothing to do with the the story, and they're both great at what they're doing individually, and that's one of what's something very unique to me about the running man as a property is, is that doing the, the book is saying so many different things um, and it make putting the complacency and the, um, the equal burden of, of the evils that are going on on the viewer, you know, in a way that, <laughs> that, uh, that the other one doesn't like, as you said, they incentivize the average person to narc on, on these guys. Right. And, and it's a, it's a gleeful thing. So it's, uh, I don't know. It's like, I, I feel like that both can exist in, in the same world and mean different things. And, and the, and I can appreciate both. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, you know, now it's even more prescient that the state of Texas has, has people, uh, you know, deputized okay. to collect bounties on people getting abortions. Now, you know, it's, yeah. it's yet another running man comparison that can be made. Yeah, it's I mean, fun I to live in a dystopia. It's yeah, it's great. It's great. But I, I do think, you know, to your point, that both of these pieces of art have matured and developed and enriched themselves over time in ways that I don't know if anybody would have expected them to. You mm-hmm. know, they, they both feel a little bit like throwaways, right? Like he wrote this book under a pseudonym, you know, just to kind of like I have this bug up my ass. I wanted to write this book. So I did. And I didn't put it under the Stephen King name just to see what would happen. But I took a flyer, whatever. Woo-hoo, this is fun. 
And then the movie, which does feel like this relic of the eighties and lots of excess and lots of camp. Um, and it is, it is this weird cross between like Verhoeven and Schumacher, you know, in that it's, it's so bright and, and day glow and, you know, Dynamo is the biggest gayest thing that I'd seen in a movie <laughs> in a long time, you know, but, but yeah, to your point, like once you live through a reality TV president, you know, who, who did not care very much about any of the trappings of morality or, or justice or peace or law, you know, and then and that was the, his appeal. That was his appeal. For, that's for, what people wanted. Yeah. They wanted, they wanted, yeah. you know, just give me, give me the thing that's not like the other things. And I don't care what that thing actually is, you know? Right. And then, you know, it, it became its own TV show that people watched simply because <laughs> can you believe this, you know, and then you watch, <laughs> The Running Man, which is, <laughs> can you believe that? And it's the, the differences between the two are closer than I would like them to be, but great art. And I never thought I would say that the Running Man film was great art, but it evolves along with the society that watches it. And I think right. that, that that's, it's commendable for that reason. That like, yeah, what, what was once a joke is now this weird trenchant satire in ways that I'm not even sure the filmmakers expected it to be, but it, it remains. Right. You know, Edgar Wright, is in the process of, or he's gearing up to, I, th I think Running Man's his next project. He's been very tight-lipped about what this is going to entail. You know, whether it, it's going to skew more towards the the source material and present present it that way, or more towards like the game show over the top version that we got with um, the movie. Do you have a preference in which you would like to see? My prediction is that it'll be right up the middle between those two things. But do you have yeah. a preference? I'm 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 conflicted in real ways about the Edgar Wright version, which has nothing to do with Edgar Wright at all. I think Edgar Wright is a, is a genius, an incredibly talented filmmaker. And I have not, mm -hmm. um, I've not disliked the thing that he's, he's done, but my ambivalence comes from an entirely selfish place, which was um, the very first thing I ever wrote in the screenplay format was an adaptation of the running man. Like I just wrote it oh, for no myself. Shit? It was like, an, and it, at this point now, it's like almost 20 years old. But I was like, I just want to adapt this book. I want to adapt it the way that it should be adapted. I just want to make this book into a movie. And so I wrote it. And, you know, in the process, sort of teaching myself how to write, you know, and teaching myself the format and what it can do and and inspired very much by by William Goldman's, you know, Adventures in the Screenplay, in the Screen Trade book, you know, like just trying to adapt a thing and keep it as much as what it was while still having to do the work of, of changing it from one medium to another. And, you know, once, once I got to work on Castle Rock and then once I started taking meetings in Hollywood, I would almost always tell them, they say, Hey, well, what would you want to work on? If you can get any book and make, what would you want to do? I would always say the running man, you know, mm -hmm. and I always say like, yeah, no, now is the time for this. Now is the time in, in which it couldn't have been done you know, A, when they first made that movie. And even for the last, you know, 10 years, you could not have made the version of this this book that should be made, which is all of the things we talked about. It's this commentary on race and class and money and reality and the the, the price of a, of a human life and, and the, the, the distrust of a populace amongst itself, like a surveillance state. All of that is things that, that feel incredibly of the moment right now. And... You know, the, the response was like, no, that's, that's, that's really good. Let's look into it. And then they would look into it and then nothing would ever happen. 
or I was <laughs> not the person to move those needles, which is also entirely possible, which, mm-hmm. you know, like if you have to have a meeting with me and with Edgar Wright, I'm pretty sure Edgar Wright gets the, the appointment before I do. Um, <laughs> so my, my hope is, is that he, he sees the things in the book that are special, you know, and he sees the themes that the book is playing with and how they are as relevant today as they were, you know, if not more so than they were in, you know, in the, the early 1980s. Um, mm. You know, I, I hope he leans a bit away from the stage-bound garishness of it and, and more into the real world, you know, everybody's out to get you version of it. You know, I think right. If, right. if this is Edgar Wright's version of the game, then then I'm, I'm yes. a little bit more oh, interested. Oh, God. Could you imagine? You know, right. I, yeah, but, but I, I, I don't I, want his version of like American Ninja Warrior, which I'm like, oh, whatever, I suppose. Right. Yeah, the, the paranoid thriller version is kind of what I'm hoping for, because that to me, more than any other aspect of the original uh, novella or short novel, I don't think it's technically a novella, <laughs> but, you know, the short novel, the very short novel, especially for Stephen King, um, is that that what we talked about is that like the cabbie that takes him away from the thing could fucking report him, you know, and, and any, anybody anywhere is going to rat you out and it becomes, you know, a kind of almost seventies political thriller in a way where it's somebody trying to hide from the prying eyes of, of that are all around him, that everybody's looking for him. Uh, and like, what, what do you do in that situation? To me, that's the interesting story that, you know, was never, ever a part of not even hinted at in the Schwarzenegger. Right. Totally. The idea that, that trust is a commodity in rare supply, you know, and it's a thing that we've encountered very much and very, very in stark relief in the past four or five years of, I thought that I knew these people, but I don't, I thought I could trust these people, but I don't. Right. Do I know that that person is doing the right thing? Is it my responsibility to make sure they do the right thing? And also recognizing that this person who's the, the, the world around him isn't uh, all bright and happy. And it's just him and his family that are, you know, totally fucked in this new uh, society that that's built up. There's a gray area where there are people that help him and then still turn him in because they just so desperate. They need that money. Right. Totally. But they know morally they they want to do the right thing and they try to like justify it in that like, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you give you a head start or whatever, you know, to to get away. But I'm still going to get me that green. That to me is is such an interesting setting that we just like I'm racking my brain. I'm trying to think. I don't think we've seen anything exactly like this on film before. No. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think not that, not to this extent, not to this extent. There's also moments in that book where it's. It's, you know, Ben Richards going into a part of the world and lots of it's in the north, the northeast because Stephen King, naturally. But right. like this guy from this place wandering to some very ritzy, like suburban enclave, you know, and the response of those people to him, you know, is, you know, is multi-tiered in ways that are really interesting and also really sad. But are they responding to him as the running man? Are they responding to him as a black man? Are they responding to him as a poor man? Um, and all of those responses are hostile responses, you know, and there's what happens when this guy ventures out into the world and how does the world respond to him? All of that is super interesting. Um, and I, and I, I envy Edgar in the capacity and the ability to wrestle these things to the ground. Um, because I think it could be really, really special in a way that, you know, I, I think this is an adaptation of Stephen King that could, that could operate at the level 
that like Shawshank did, which is um, it elevates what was into a thing that becomes somewhat unique and iconic um, to the point where the surprise is, oh, that was Stephen King? Like, yeah, no, Stephen yeah. King writes like this. This was in his wheelhouse. Um, hmm. You know, the surprise of, you know, oh, shit, I didn't think I liked Stephen King, but damn it, I'm kind of in love with this. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious about the the version you wrote. Have you have you revisited it lately? Like, when's the last time you read over it? Um, it's. I want to say that I read over it. I gave it. I gave it a look see like two or three years ago. And yeah, like you couldn't shoot that draft because <laughs> it would. It, it still was a dude learning how to do this, you know, and making lots and lots of different mistakes, some small, some big, you know, and some of it was was. A, a lack of economy and some of it was, you know, I think I wrote it. Um, I ended up adapting it probably. Yeah. Yeah. It was 20 years ago. So just after nine 11, if you remember the climax of that book, um, yep. uh, spoilers, there's a plane <laughs> that crashes into a skyscraper. And for a very long time, I was like, you can't do that. Like, you'll never be able to do that again. Like, you just, so I don't know how you end this movie. I don't know what the solution to it is. And I'd invented some kind of like orbital elevator bullshit that, that didn't really work. It made it too sci-fi, you know? And then when I reread it like three years ago, I was like, you know, actually, no, you could do the plane into the skyscraper now. Um, I think you could. You know, like, that's a I think big that, question mark about Wright's version too, is if he does, if he is faithful to the source material, will he put that on screen? And I, I do think he could get away with it now. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that we have enough distance that we can, we can play with it a little bit. We can put some different perspective on it. Um, you know, and, and I think it actually does a really good job of cementing the idea in the book that like Ben Richards might be doing the things he's doing for the right reason, but he's doing things a criminal would do, you know, mm -hmm. he's doing the wrong things. He's an antihero. He's doing the wrong things for the right reason. And so right. for that dude to, you know, again, spoilers, um, fly a plane into a skyscraper, but the skyscraper is filled with evil and he's doing a heroic self-sacrificing act. Um, I think you can make an audience buy it, even if the visuals of it, um, you might have to be careful about. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Do you, what do you think about Ben Richards as a character um, in your mind? Because something that stood out to me on uh, the recent reread that I did on the the story was that his, most of the time with Stephen King characters and you get inside their brain, you are seeing them work through things. You are getting to experience their thoughts as they happen. And for Ben Richards, at, the, at least at the beginning, like when he's doing his um, – uh, like all the, the tests that he does where he has to go like floor to floor, essentially, as he's getting approved by different departments to, to be on the show, his interior monologue is kind of disgusting. Like mm -hmm. it is very sexist. It's very misogynist. It's, you know, it's, it's not the typical, you called him an anti-hero. He's not the typical hero as written. Um, and he's kind of a, uh, of a dickhead, you know, to, to be honest, he's kind of an asshole. Um, but you sympathize with him because you're right. He's doing it because he's trying to save somebody he loves. Right. And that's yeah. something we can relate to. Um, but what, what do you think of him as written and, and like, what do you think he should be on screen? I mean, I always interpreted that and maybe it was because I was, I was adding sympathy to my empathy. Um, but his responses were the responses of a person who was also being treated like a piece of meat. 
um, and trying to remind those people on his way up, you know, the secretaries and the administrative assistants and everybody that they too are just meat for this charnel house, but they don't see it. And so he was, it's, it's truth to power um, in a very ugly, ugly way. Um, and so I thought that it was this sort of defense mechanism of his, of like, I'm going to armor myself with antipathy as I escalate my way up into this building and they won't be able to take what little humanity I do have left because I'm shielding it with venality. Um, right. You know, I think you would probably have to modulate that a little bit in a, in a film version because it is very ugly very quickly um, mm-hmm. and understanding that. But I, I think there's also, as a character, he he's also a little bit, he doesn't change. Like there's no arc for Ben Richards. He's like, he's like Danny Ocean. Right, like Danny Ocean mm-hmm, is who mm-hmm. he, he begins the movie the one way, he ends the movie the same way. It's just, can I do this thing? Can I achieve my goal? Um, and my goal is to get my wife back, and so you understand that. But like, he's the same guy, you know. Indiana Jones is the same guy. James Bond is the same guy, and so I think that this this is one of the few um, sort of Stephen King protagonists who does not evolve over the course of his story. Right. And for that reason, I kept on wondering, like, all right, if you had to put together the Stephen King Avengers, like, this dude is clearly, like, fucking Captain America, right? Like, here's, <laughs> here's, here's the dude that, like, Nick Fury shows up and welcomes him into the Tommyknockers or whatever the hell. Um, <laughs> we got some shit weasels that are coming. We need your help, Ben <laughs> We need your help. <laughs> you have a very specific set of skills I need. <laughs> Um, in the previous conversations we've had about this property on the show, um, there's a question that I've asked every one of the guests, and I'll throw it to you now. If The Running Man were a real thing, would you watch it? And you can you can make it palatable in some way, you know, like you're a version of it you would watch. But I guess that's the real question. Is there any version of this you would watch? I mean, I, I 100%. You know, I, I think to a certain degree, anybody who argues otherwise is probably not being true to themselves. But like, I've watched The Amazing Race for like 10 years, and it's that. <laughs> I've watched Survivor for like 15 years, and it's that. Um, I, I don't well, watch a ton. But it's also on screen death, isn't it? It's on screen death. Are higher. They're higher, but we also watch Jackass, and I'm sure that like every now and again, they cut the camera a little bit early. Like, what happened <laughs> to that person? <laughs> you know, like we watch stock car racing, we watch NASCAR and like we watch the, MMA and, you know, see people get their bones broken yeah. and, and blood fly and you watch it for that. And the boxing to a point, it's yeah, like, we've seen people just watching the people. ring. We've seen, we've seen it happen. Like, and it's, it, it's not dissuaded an audience from watching because, you know, some dude gets punched and his nose goes up into his skull and he dies. You know, I, I feel as if we are literally a step away from doing it on purpose. Um, mm-hmm. But when it happens by accident, um, it does not render what we're watching invalid. And it doesn't stop any – it doesn't convince anybody to cancel said show. You know, especially if it's sport. You know, the, the, the difference is, is it sport or is it reality TV? And those two things, the line that blurs them is getting thinner every day. Mm. Well, and, I agree with you. I think it would be a big hit. And yeah. and I do think I would watch it um, at least until something happened in it that turned me off. You know, I've seen like, you know, faces of death or traces of death, shit like that. And I always regret it. 
every fucking time. <laughs> right. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, this is going to be, you know, you know, there's some, you know, dark streak in you that's like, yeah, I'll watch that shit. Um, and then once you see it in action or see someone get their head pulled off or hit by a train or something, you're like, fuck, dude, I don't know if my soul needed that today. Um, yeah. So I, I think I would watch it until I hit one of those moments. And then I would want like a very specific version of it. Like I would want the contestants to be like people that were convicted of very heinous crimes, sex crimes or crimes against children, shit like that. Like that. But there is a version of it that, yeah, I would check it out. And and I yeah. agree with you that anyone who says that like full on, no, I would never watch it is maybe not entirely being honest with themselves. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. in our DNA. Like you, you mentioned sports, you know, people, we watch a lot of that for, we watch American football, you know, not to see a beautiful touchdown pass. We want to see fucking 300 pound dudes smash into each other and hit, you know, it's like, that's, we, we can talk about how sad it is, you know, that football players get concussions, but you know what, that's kind of the fucking draw of watching, watching that shit. You watch rugby or you watch any of these contact sports, the violence is kind of part of it. And it's kind of just ingrained in our DNA. I mean, there used to be fucking gladiator battles and shit. You know, no people shit. literally Romans throwing Christians into the Coliseum with fucking and lions. And, shit. With lions. and that sounds like that sounds like a fun show. I would watch that on that network. Yeah, like we, um, we, we, but, we would like uh, to think yeah. we wouldn't watch it, and yet if you watch any football game and any injury, there's replays. And mm-hmm. if we, yeah. if an audience didn't want the replays, we wouldn't have the replays. You know, if and so like I need to watch Joe Theismann get his entire leg shattered in 15 different places eight times <laughs> during that broadcast. In slow motion in from slow different motion. angles. Like, do I want to watch it? No. Will I watch it the first time? Yes. Will I watch it the second time? Yes. And then I might look away. But the network <laughs> right. isn't looking away for me. The network will right. happily keep rebroadcasting that. <laughs> and that's how I know On that the there's side. a hunger, hunger for it and an audience for it. The sixth yeah. time they showed the footage and they put a laugh track on it, that was a little inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't like that. But the other Yackety one, Yakety Sax, does not belong. <laughs> yeah, then the Nickelodeon version where there's slime on the field and. <laughs> yeah, I watched um, the the last uh, big MMA thing. Like uh, we, I had a friend in town who's huge in the MMA, and it was it Conor McGregor, like when he broke his his ankle mm. during the the thing, and. And uh, I don't I don't watch MMA a lot, but like my friend was in town. And so they like we kind of gathered a group together and we watched the pay-per-view. We bought the pay-per-view and watched the thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you're watching that stuff and it's great. But like you're exactly right. Even just like now when that happened, when you're watching it in the moment, you he just dropped all of a sudden. You're like, well, what the fuck is this guy doing? And why, why is he doing that? And then you when you realize he broke his ankle they did exactly that. They fucking did the slow motion. They had eight cameras on him and they fucking zoomed in and like showed his, his leg was straight in one moment and it wasn't the next. And, and uh, again, that's part of the appeal. I, I, I think that yes, straight up murder is a step too far right now, but it's not a, a far step, <laughs> you know, it's, it's something very step. close. And, and the book is also really smart about the narrative that reality television um, creates around the contestants on their shows. You know, nobody who makes it onto TV is the mm-hmm. person that is presented on TV, you know? Right. And so if you, if you could tell an audience, these people are the worst of the worst. They are serial killers. They are sex offenders. They are, they are, you know, sexual predators. There's, you know, genocide at, at play. 
There, yeah, like sure. Let's watch that dude. Let's put them all on an island. Let's make them kill each other on an island. Let me battle royale. I'll watch that shit. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and, and like so, it's, it's like pe- people on death row, right? Instead of like giving them totally. the needle, give give them the sh- the shot of like Ted Bundy. Here's your chance. You know, let's yeah. let's see you get away, motherfucker. You know that kind of thing for sure. There, like, there would be a rapidness the, to it if you die in the process. That's okay. I get it. If you win, you you your life sentence is revoked, and you're just now life on uh, life without possibility of parole i feel like there's yeah, an audience for that <laughs> you know like yeah yeah they it's, couldn't it's, let him lose yeah they, they would have to could yeah. let him just free just like yeah no you're you're done like no we're just not going to kill you so if we can't manage a, to kill you in this in this month then we're not going to kill you next year <laughs> I, I think in a practical sense if i'm a prisoner on death row and the choice is get the needle or, or you know ride the chair or um you know be hunted for sport and maybe get a life sentence instead of the death sentence. I'm I'm taking the death sentence, baby. Like I yeah. like why put myself through that? You're not gonna I, get, I could just sit here shot. and read for the next couple of years <laughs> while you while you guys sort out the scheduling on this, or I could be hunted by dynamo. Like, fuck you. I'm gonna sit right here. <laughs> I've already got my last meal figured out. Don't worry about it. I don't think I would go through the effort. But then again, I'm not a you know violent lunatic. So maybe <laughs> maybe they would right. be more you, you know, seem apt to be to saying do it. <laughs> yeah see only seem to. seem to be yes seem is doing a lot of heavy lifting there um yeah. i think it's and refreshing what you're saying the last couple of times we've talked about this one it's um i i seem to remember previous guests not being so willing to embrace the possibility of a real running man so i'm this is highly entertaining for me they definitely did admit that they would watch it and and like and be into it because i i remember feeling like the weirdo saying you know if i'm gonna be honest about this i'd fucking watch it i know i would i might not fucking tweet about it and brag about it but i know me well, and i would be so curious there's no doubt in my mind that i wouldn't i wouldn't watch this. well one of them was kamel and kamel was like you know he's just got a, a very strong aversion to violence. And right. w- when I was like, you know, well, let's say the, the running man himself is a convicted rapist many times over, you know, you're still not going to watch. He's like, no, you know, he, I guess, I think he said that he, he saw someone shot once or, you know, horribly injured. And that was enough right. to put him off real world violence for the rest of his life. Like there would be zero entertainment value to it. I still secretly believe that Kamel would probably tune in for one episode, but you know, I, I, I get or a that. Watch too. highlights. Yeah. yeah. Maybe well, like, listen, I, I, if should this insanity ever become real, my statement is I would watch one episode. If I yep. liked it, I would watch more, but it's entirely possible that I could be so revolted by it that I wouldn't watch it anymore period. Right. But I think that, that it was a, it's a thing that at some point may exist. Um, and I think pretending otherwise is the, is the naivete. Do you want exact it? Well, then, on it? Will it happen? Yep. Right. Maybe. I, yeah. I, I and, well, then the conversation turns to the death sentence part of it, right? Because mm-hmm. then there you get into the, the ground that they, you know, kind of haphazardly covered in the movie version where it's a wrongfully convicted guy. You know, that's right. that's in the games. And then you have the conversation that we currently have about, um, you know, the death penalty and whether or not that's something we as a society should do. Is it worth killing somebody who turns out to be innocent 
one person, you know, killing a hundred bad guys that we know are bad. If one person who is innocent, we can't take back what we did to that person. You know, then that, then that becomes the moral, moral question at the center of a show like this. And the justice Um, system and the prison industrial complex are, you know, notorious and proven for, you know, skewing, let's say, uh, not fairly, in terms of the type of people that they're incarcerating or executing, right. you know, like, <laughs> and so that would lead, you know, that itself leads to a conversation about, you know, well, what if it's a, a version of the running man? And then you would have to like parse out like, well, with what if, what if it's predominantly a certain race of contestants and then you have right. a, a huge segment of the audience that's watching it for the wrong reasons. And then what are the wrong reasons? Yeah. You know, it's once you start down that, that train of thought, it can really spiral out of control really quick. It would be an evil thing if it existed. Oh, no, no question. Yes. No question. So no. I'll just watch the one episode. Yes. <laughs> but I would still watch it. It would be evil. I'd still watch it. I, I just know me. Like, I just know I'd be curious. Yeah, there'd be no uh, stopping I, I might me. hit that part that that point that Mark was talking about where I might be revolted and I just can't hang with it. I do get weirdly anxious watching a lot of, um, uh, reality TV uh, to, to be honest, like watching um, like fucking dating shit and people <laughs> like backstabbing each other and stuff that, that like makes me feel uneasy. So I don't watch a whole lot of reality TV. So if that makes me anxious, I can't imagine what fucking watching, uh, you know, hunting a human being for sport kind of a show would, <laughs> would make me feel, but I can tell you, I'm curious. I can, can tell you that right up front. <laughs> curious. If you were curious when you when you wrote your version of the script, Mark, did you have um, did you have anyone in mind specifically for Ben Richards? Um, No, I didn't. I didn't. I ironically had somebody in mind for Damon Killian, but I didn't have anybody in mind for for Ben Richards. You you Um, said you imagined the character as a a a black guy. Yeah. So I was thinking maybe you had one in mind. And then I was thinking, you know, Denzel would be fucking good for that. You know, he's a yeah. little too heroic, like like, uh, you know, Schwarzenegger is, you know, he's an imposing dude, I would imagine. Um, but and not the squirrely version of the character I've always imagined in my mind. It's always like a guy that looks like Steve Buscemi or some shit, you know, right. but, but I could see him doing that. I mean, you know, Kevin Hart, the little running man, you know, when I when I reread it again and I was thinking about it, um, Ironically, the, the, the person that came to mind was Michael K. Williams. Um, oh, wow. Jesus. You know, because, yeah. because I think there is such a vulnerability um, to his performances. There's this depth of emotion and empathy. Um, but the outward visage of him is enough to inspire fear if you don't know what you're looking at and if you don't know who you're yes. looking right. at. You know, and so I think that dichotomy, that split, that like the mask that he could put forward of of anger and danger mixed with this incredibly sensitive, kind of internally knowledgeable about himself version. Right. Um, that's the tension that I think you need in a character like Ben Richards. You need you need somebody who can put up the front, but at its core has this deep reservoir of, you know, pain and emotion and empathy and sympathy and grit, you know, and resolve. And the feeling that when that person makes a decision, um, there's no, there's nothing that will, you know, he's like a pit bull, right? Like once he clenches his jaws, nothing will get him to unclench those jaws. And so I think that, that, 
that yeah that was that him or somebody like him and i don't think there's anybody else like him would have been perfect that's somebody you can buy seeing in the real world right it's it's not like if you like uh if like edgar casts michael b jordan or something in the role like i <laughs> believe michael b jordan could get out of whatever situation he's in you know that that that, that is a guy that is a movie star you know it's like casting sure. tom cruise or something you know it's like that is and i hope you know whatever direction edgar goes with it that he goes in that that era i mean i don't know if he can the studio might just <laughs> say no you need a movie star you know right. that just might be it yeah that's true. Uh, i think i think we can all agree that we do want uh killian to be played by ellen degeneres though for, for his movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> could you imagine that at this point like after everything that's happened with her in the past <laughs> she, like, yeah. she's like fuck it i'm gonna just double down on yeah, i'm gonna this. lean into this yeah she's going full dark no stars i'm just going <laughs> it would be br- it would be a brilliant casting move though you know if i mean i, I can't imagine she would do it move. Fuck oh, yeah, man. i love that dawson what a great like just subversion of of his entire presence you know <laughs> bob barker would have been good too i bet a, at a certain time and place not not so much anymore right. i don't think bob's uh uh He's probably yeah. not up for doing any acting anymore. He's, his happy Gilmore <laughs> yeah. days are long behind him. But yeah, he's still just crawling around his neighborhood, fucking looking for animals to fucking neuter and spade. Yeah, yeah. yeah I fucked John that Oliver joke would. up, but it was funny. I think it was funny. <laughs> um, John Oliver would be good. I goodbye John Oliver. John Oliver, the sort of the <laughs> yeah, super silliest British right. guy. I think we floated Steve Harvey as well. Like it was just pulling <laughs> from like the that kind of game show world. You know, a giant suit, <laughs> a giant, a giant flashy suit, and his his huge mustache, and and the awkward pauses that he always makes, the breaking the fourth wall, can't believe what I'm seeing, kind of shit. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, he could do it. What do you think <laughs> about Bachman versus King? Do you like Bachman's writing as much as King's, even though it's the same person? Like, do you? Um, I do you think stand it's. On that? it's it, it, oddly, and maybe not so oddly, because maybe this is the whole point, is that it feels freer in a way mm-hmm. in that it's not, there are no expectations for it. You know, and I think that by the time Stephen King started writing under the, the pseudonym, it was, wouldn't it be great if I didn't have to deal with the towering, you know, assumptions that an audience, the size of his audience would have about his work? You know, and there, there's always the desire, even, you know, when you're writing under your own name to, you know, give the audience to a certain degree, uh, not what they want, but what they need to subvert their expectations. Right. But you know that they're always there, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, there, there, there was something a little bit more um, EC Comics, I think, in a weird way about his Bachman stuff, which felt just kind of dashed off in this sort of mad frenzy of, I just got the story I want to tell, I'm going to tell it. You know, I'm just going to fucking blast through it. And whether it's a thing that I think my publisher would want, I don't care. Whether it's a thing I think the audience will respond to, I don't care. Um, I just wanted to pulp. And and so much of his Bachman work was pulp. Mm-hmm. I think there's like a nihilistic streak to it that Stephen King can't really get away with uh, mm. being Stephen King. You know, we had some – who was it on the show? Maybe it was you, Eric, that, that said mm. this. But like – Steven Spielberg mentioning that he has ideas for movies and shit, but they're so gnarly that he couldn't, he just couldn't possibly do them. They would just turn. <laughs> it was your hair like Mick white. Garris. 
Oh, Mick Garris. Mick Garris. Yes. Yeah, 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 it was him. I think there's a comparison to be made there to to King. Like his his books have a certain amount of heart to them that Bachman's stuff just doesn't have. It's mm-hmm. it's him, you know, operating in a mode where it, where it feels almost like how do I put it? I guess nihilistic is the best way I can put it. Right. It, it it has a big wide streak like that and I really appreciate it. I wish he would and I wish he would like occasionally go back and and do just get it out of his system. You know, it's it kind of does because Revival would have been uh, kind of a, a perfect mm-hmm. Bachman book. Billy Summers um, he is also from... pretty pretty um, Bachman esque, I think. Although yeah, it's got a it lot of King elements. art in it, but it's yeah, maybe yeah, it's right I, up I feel the that's more Stephen King than than Bachman personally. But it's I think at the time that is correct. You couldn't for his brand in the late seventies, early eighties. It is absolutely perfect that he he made a, a pseudonym because that that would have hit him harder than I think probably anything in the from the last like 20 years on he could release any one of those like mean you know fucking Bachman stories and it wouldn't impact him whatsoever I think he's kind of bulletproof now he could do just about anything he wants Mm -hmm. um uh, Mm -hmm. as long as he doesn't turn into JK Rowling uh (laughs) anything he wants on on, on, uh you know uh on a storytelling perspective but but uh, I think at the time in the 80s that that would have soured um, kind of the reputation he was building for himself as as the guy that, as we mentioned, everybody's mom read. You know, mm-hmm. it. He he was he was like for everybody. He was a populist. Um, I think now he can get away with being more subversive. Yeah, because is inversely, and there's you know whole different conversation to be had about J.K. Rowling. But you know her her employing of a pseudonym post Harry Potter is. I have to make sure that my Harry Potter readers don't come and read this book that has, you know, like sex and violence and breasts and touching of things in it because <laughs> it's, I can't like the, the, these two brands don't cross, they don't meet. Right. Um, whereas, you know, Stephen King, at least at that time, was still building that brand. You know, sure you had, you know, you know, Carrie and it and the shining and, and so forth and so on, but it's still like, I haven't written 50 books yet. I've written seven. Um, and some yeah. of them have done better than others. And, you know, I'm on an upswing and that's great. But to your point, is this audience who, you know, comes to me for children who escape their awful parental figures and survive horrors beyond the imagining of mortal men, going to deal with this nihilism bullshit <laughs> that I want to do over here. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that is a, it's a legitimate market concern as well as a personal taste concern. Right. Mm. And it's also something he had an outlet for with his short stories because he has some very disturbing and downer short stories that'll pop up in all of his collections going back to his first. Um, but it, it's weird that audi- audiences and readers don't take that as seriously as a full novel. You know what I mean? Like if, if he had written a full novel that had the ending of the jaunt in it, you know, I think that there would have been a lot of blowback. I mean, there was a lot of blowback for, for uh, Dark Tower. You know, when people were reading it and they didn't understand, like, why, why, uh, you know, their, their scary guy was writing this bullshit, you know, about a cowboy, you know, I mean, there, there, there was, you know, there, there, that, that happened in the eighties. So (laughs) yeah, I I don't know. There's some, there's some difference between a short story and a novel. And I don't know what that line is for, for readers or or readers and and Moss, you know, those stories are also the ones that survive, you know, those are the ones that live on and, and people will talk about 30 years later. Versus, you know, a more mass appeal story. So mm. I don't know what the answer is there, but I'm going to raise that question anyway. 
Tada. You know what? I I didn't realize until we were, I was, I was kind of clicking around the Wikipedia page for the running man movie as we were talking. This doesn't mean anything one way or another, but a little fun fact. (laughs) Uh Uh, The guy who directed running man, Paul Michael Glazer also directed Kazam with Shaq. Wow. (laughs) So that's a little fun thing you learned today. Everyone. Well, but that and was, also, so, was also Hutch from Starsky and Hutch. Yeah, true. That's true. Very true. He's a, he's a yeah, man of I many think, facets. Yeah, and I think the story was that he came on like two weeks in the shooting. Uh, on this, he was replaced, right? Replacing somebody, and and the only thing he had really directed up at that point were like some episodes of Miami Vice and some other TV stuff, and and I think they just said, "Hey, we like the look of those episodes. Come on in and make this this movie that's already everything is decided." And Schwarzenegger is really the creative force, you know, in front of uh, dictating <laughs> everything. Yeah, yeah. And he had done he did an episode of Amazing Stories too, which was kind of right. Cool. Yeah. It's it's funny how often there is some sort of lurking connection in the background on all these things that connects King to Spielberg. It happens over right. and over and over again. It's, it's pretty interesting. Hmm. Always tangential. Well, I mean, they never just fucking work together. Like they, like I'd like to see, you know, yeah. but they're, they're always tiptoeing around well, each other. The, their names are Steven. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, no, I, I, um, I interviewed the Duffers, uh, and the once in for, for, it was like an Emmy, lead up to the Emmys is like publicity Emmy publicity in the magazine asked me to interview them for, for them. And, uh, in that conversation just turned into the two Stevens and how they, I mean, how they were the most influential voices for, for them growing up. And, and that's true of most, you know, late seventies and early eighties kids is, is they're both super populist storytellers mm-hmm. that that are like the best at what they do and what they do also happens to appeal to the masses in in a giant way and and they were both very similarly fucking kind of shat upon by the critical establishment at the time and and you know you still to this day will hear some lingering like spielberg criticisms about how he's emotionally manipulative and and all this stuff but that was the the default back mm-hmm. in the day it's like he's not making real cinema and it wasn't until you know, he pumped out. Uh, I think it was, it was really was Schindler's list when the change happened, even though he, cause he kind of got lambasted for color purple and empire. Of the sun it is a fucking great movie, but it wasn't, it didn't have the same cachet that, that uh, Schindler's did. But, uh, and I think that Spielberg and King had a kind of similar thing where when people realized King made Shawshank Redemption or wrote Shawshank Redemption or, or stand by me, that that's when they were like, okay, well now I can take the, the populist genre guy seriously. Yeah, Um, absolutely. There are a lot of parallels between those two for sure. Very much. Hmm. I thought of a question during that and now I've forgotten it. Sorry, very I talked di- too long. I made very you forget diabolically. Your yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll remember it two hours after we were recording. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Anything else we would like to talk about in relation to the Running Man? Um, nothing. Nothing else on my end. Um, but it is. It, it just remains for me. You know, in in the in the way that I mean, everybody has rediscovered Stephen King at some point. He seems to go through these cycles of of rediscovery where people. Remember, oh, he's not just this, he's also that. Um, mm-hmm. Or if you've read all of these, look for these little ones, these little, you know, right. gems in the, in, the, in, the, in the nuggets. And so I think that, that The Running Man, and I'm sure it will happen when Edgar's movie comes out, um, will be sort of rediscovered for, for what it is and for mm-hmm. what, it, what it always was. 
you know, something of an outlier because, you know, also, and maybe it's because I'm, I'm interpreting things in, in the text that aren't there, but in my interpretation of Ben Richards as an African-American, one of the things I discovered on Castle Rock doing the deep dive there is that one of Stephen King's big blind spots is writing race. Yeah. Um, oh, yes. And, and it's either, you know, magical Negro or magical Negro. And that's kind of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, so imagining Ben Richards as a character of color, but then given the same kind of, um, depth and, and, and urgency and drive as somebody like, like Pangborn, um, is a bit of a discovery. I think mm-hmm. that, that most people, um, I think would be dispri- surprised to find. I'm curious if you would be willing to stage mm-hmm. a live reading of your running man scripts. <laughs> and maybe, you know, we could assist you in this. Maybe we, we put it together as a little charity thing. Do you think ah. it's, do you, do you think that, um, we'll bring in some guests, you know, help promote it. You think you, do you, are you comfortable enough with like the quality of the screenplay? Are you like, that was 20 <laughs> years ago and yeah, no one needs to be reading like, those dude, words out loud. Yeah. I'm like, dude, this is what I did to learn how to write a screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That could be fun though. That could be, I mean, depending on how self-effacing you are, you know, that could be, um, that could it, be it could be a ton of fun. Um, one thing that I, that I did decide to do not too long ago, is I, I had a, a Kickstarter campaign for a short film that I want to mm-hmm. that I want to make that I'm going to make that we're shooting in like a couple of months, um, but one of the rewards was this big download of of scripts and materials and stories and and stuff that I've written, and among them is going to be the the, the contestant is what I called it, not the running man. Um, oh, interesting. And uh, so you are putting it out there. So I'm going to put it out into the world, even though it's a thing I don't own. Um, but it's also not a thing I'm profiting off of per se. Um, right. So I feel I feel the legal wiggle, the legal wiggle room is enough that I can that I can have a little um, safety in there. But mm-hmm. maybe, maybe keep it in mind. Yeah, that would be a, that would be a fun ass project to work on. I think, and um, if we could raise some money for a good cause in the process. That would that would just rule. Um, it, it would be a. Um, so yes, let, let me think on it, but it's not like, are you out of your minds? No way. We're never <laughs> right. going to do that. Stage in the we, vault. At one point, did you ever <laughs> read a script called Maximum King that was on the blacklist a few years ago? No. It's, uh, Shay Hatton wrote it. Are you familiar with Shay? Mm-hmm. I am. Okay. So Shay wrote it when he was like, you know, 23, 24, it ends up on the blacklist. It's, it's about the making of Maximum Overdrive. So the main character is Stephen King, mm-hmm. but he's like a cartoonishly over the top coked up Stephen King for this, the duration of this thing. And it's sort of like a God, how would you do almost it's, it's almost like, uh, God damn it. Their last names are failing me, but, uh, the writing duo of Larry and Alexander who did, you know, people versus Larry Flint and Ed Alexander, Scott Karazowski. That's it. It's got that, that sort of, you know, sort of feel to it just a smidge more over the top and like so Stephen King seeing like visions of you know some of his characters and you know including you know Randall Flagg or say Jack Torrance and uh it's just a heightened sense of comedy it's funny as fuck it's and one of my favorite just spec scripts that I've ever read but under no circumstances could this thing actually be made. Someone would be get, probably Shay would be getting sued off the face of the fucking earth. 
And <laughs> so when I first read it, I tried to interview him because I was so in love with the thing and I just wanted to kind of pick this guy's brain. And the word I got back was that uh, after after reaching out through some mutual acquaintances was that uh, he didn't really want to talk about that um, on the record. And maybe like should maybe we should just let that slide like it had been maybe made clear <laughs> somewhere along the line that uh, we did not want to be drawing attention to this. And so then I got it in my head. You know, a couple of years later that, you know, once we started doing the show, it was like, oh, it would be cool to do that as like a live read, like on the Patreon. And uh, yeah, it turns out that's wildly illegal, too. Uh, I couldn't do that. <laughs> so, so, you know, that will that will remain untouched. But I, I do have I, I, I would love to I would love for us to to stage something like that at some point, because I think it would be such a fucking blast to do. So, yeah, do think about it. That would be we'll that would be really cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. This was awesome. Um, mm, this is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to pitch or tease or promote whatever they'd like, whatever you're working on or whatever is of whatever is on your mind these days. Do you have anything you want to shine a light on or tease? Well, tease. There's not too much I can tease that that isn't already wrapped up in. in well, no, I suppose I can say that. I worked on the second season of Star Trek Picard, which now has a release date. So February 2022 mm-hmm. is uh, is nice. when you guys will get to take a look at that. Um, let's see. Hey, the return a, of Q, right? The return of Q and the return of the Borg That's Queen, really neat. Which, which I am not spoiling, thankfully. That one just got um, a third season too, huh? And just got a third season. Um, congrats. Let's see. Uh, yeah, well, congrats to them. I'm no longer on it, but congrats to, congrats to those chaps. No, fuck that show then. <laughs> uh, no, we parted Sir on Patrick it. Stewart can eat my ass. Cancel yes. it. Well, one of you might like that more than the other. <laughs> um, I uh, I am still doing this podcast with Kevin Smith called Fat Man Beyond. He just mm-hmm. wrapped Clerks 3, so we should be back um, in the Scum and Villainy Cantina on the regular to record. Um, Masters of the Universe Revelation. Um, the I think the back half of the the first season is coming in relatively short order. I don't I don't have a date, so I can't spoil it. But um, I know it's done, so it's just a matter of when Netflix wants to give it to people. Um, well, we don't know when this is going to air either, so that tracks. Um, but I think that's about it, man. I think you know any anything else that I might have to offer the world in any way uh, can be found on either Twitter or Instagram at Mark Bernardin, and that's Mark with a C. Right on. Sweet. Well, thank you again for being here. It was a delight. Happy to have you on the show, and please come back sometime. Would be happy to. Um, I can't wait to return to the king. <laughs> <laughs> and we can't wait to have you back. Way to bring oh, it on. fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being here, Mark. All right. Thanks, gang. Many thanks to Mark Bernardin for finally coming on the show. He has been one of our most often requested guests, and uh, I think he lived up to uh, to all the expectations we had. And, and hopefully, uh, all you listeners feel the same. He absolutely did. I was I was glad to have him on, and I was also happy to um, kind of attack this from uh, a different angle. We are sort of spent talking about the Schwarzenegger version of this story, and this time we got <laughs> to got to focus on the Bachman version a little bit more, and that was uh, that was a pleasure. Because uh, I have, after several hours, I've run out of things to say about the about the movie version. Uh, what's coming up on the show next uh, next week? 
<laughs> so we're, we're going from, you know, diving into the the social class struggles of <laughs> of uh, uh, the running man uh, and taking a, a somewhat more serious look at, at uh, a more serious book. Uh, and next week we are going a little bit wackier. We are rejoining our favorite corn children, this time looking at Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest. Corn boys, yes. Love those yes. corn boys. Getting back into it. Malachi and the boys fucking around with their corn cobs, but now in an urban setting. Very exciting stuff. It's a direct-to-video classic. Uh, and uh, in order to do this, we have a returning guest who people may or may not guess <laughs> right out of the gate. If uh, you're familiar with our previous Children of the Corn episodes, you might have a, a, an idea of, of mm-hmm. who we might be going with here. Yes, indeed. Um, a lot of the episodes you're getting this month are pretty substantial in terms of like, uh, I don't know, they're a little weightier than some of the others. And as you'll find mm-hmm. out later this month, um, this one is this is sort of our entry for December in terms of the uh, turn your brain off at the door type deal. It's Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest. You know what you're getting into, and we're getting into that next week. So uh, please enjoy that. And if that is not your thing, then uh, just stay tuned because uh, we got we have more substantial areas to explore before 2022 mm. hits. For sure. Yeah, I can safely say that before the end of the year, you're going to be hearing from returning favorites and uh, some favorite topics. Let's just leave it at that for now. Indeed. And then uh, this Friday on the Patreon, we are un- uh, unleashing a- an episode we just recorded today, actually, with uh, a guest by the name of Reina Cervantes. Uh, she is a writer for Fangoria and Bloody Disgusting. Asked her to be on the show. Asked her if she had any pitches uh, in terms of Stephen King, and she came right back with, have you guys talked about Carrie the Musical? We had not. Mm. And Eric and I, very unfortunately, subjected ourselves to the entirety <laughs> of Carrie the Musical today, as did Raina, and we all gathered to talk about it. Uh, if you are a fan of Carrie the Musical, you are going to want to avoid this episode because we were not <laughs> kind to it in any shape, way, or form. But we did, you know, in the name of exploring all these nooks and crannies of Stephen King's uh, mythos, uh, we we had to do it and do it. We did. Don't want to do it again. Glad we got an episode out of it. But uh, <laughs> that is the beginning and ending of my relationship with uh, Carrie the Musical. That hits the Patreon yep. this Friday. If you're not already a patron, that's uh, patreon.com backslash the King cast. Head on over there. Get signed up. Uh, you're going to get. Depending on what tier you sign up for, you're going to get a shit ton of uh, bonus episodes, one every Friday, come rain or shine, plus commentary, some of which feature your favorite filmmakers who are talking about their own Stephen King adaptations. Don't think I'm giving anything away by saying that by the end of this month, you're going to get another commentary with multiple guests who who were involved in the creation of a certain King title. We're going to be dropping that later this month. And Believe me when I say you're not going to want to miss this. It's going to be a great big deal when it drops. Oh, yeah. I'm so looking forward to it. Uh, So if you're going to sign up to our Patreon, uh, I highly advise signing up for the $10 tier right now. You don't want to be sitting there at the $6 tier and not have access to this Patreon bonus commentary. It is going to be a banger. Indeed. And I think that about catches us up on all the... uh, Housekeeping, right. yes. Yeah, absolutely. Just make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Give us them five stars. 
And, uh, you know, and if you don't want to do that, I know it's a pain in the ass. I hear people on podcasts I listen to all the time ask for that. I can't be asked to do it. I understand. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to do that, then, you know, go on social media, tell a friend, you know, spread the love of the KingCast. That's all we ask. Indeed. We just signed a contract for another year, folks. We got to we got to keep this party going and we got to make it bigger than ever. Uh, we have some surprises lined up for next year that are going to drop your fucking jaws. Uh, you're going to be very excited. And, um, well, we've got a lot of stuff we're planning for next year. You're going to want to be part of this party. So get involved now, spread the word, and thank you for listening this far. All right. We'll see you guys next week for our favorite corn children, three urban harvest corn boys. Yes. Corn boys. No Malachi, no Malachi though. He, he, he ain't around for this one, but we do get some corn boys. We, we get some urban harvesting, uh, and we have a whole lot of fun with it. So that'll be next week on the main feed. And this Friday, we will be discussing carry the musical on the Patreon. Whoop whoop. Adios folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. Mm-hmm.